We'll take your Bibles this evening to First uh, Samuel chapter number 10. As we continue our study through the book of First Samuel, just slowly, deliberately, uh, in many cases, one chapter at a time, going through the book of First Samuel. Um, I, I wanted to do this study for many reasons, but one of them was to just kind of teach us how to go through a chapter. And, you know, if there's a question that you have about a phrase or a place or a, uh, just any question that you come up against and you, you read over a statement, you're not familiar with it. We're trying to give critical thinking skills as we study our Bible, trying to understand that, you know, many times uh, to, to understand a spiritual concept is oftentimes just a little effort away. Uh, it doesn't take a preacher to unearth these things that I'm talking about. Many times they're quite readily available. And so I'm just trying to help us as we try to study our Bible. Um, when I was in college, I took a class called Methodical Bible Study. Now, let me ask you, would that describe the way that you read your Bible? Methodical Bible Study. Most cases, uh, people just read it, go through it, check it off the rest of the day. Uh, in many cases, it's a proverb or, or maybe just a daily bread. And if that's you, then that's good. But maybe we could try to step up our game in our, our, our study as, uh, as workmen, uh, st- good stewards of the Word of God, rightly dividing the truth. And so that's kind of one of the reasons we did this. We come to 1 Samuel chapter number 10. We've talked about the anointing of King Saul. We're kind of right in the middle of that event as now Samuel has met Saul in the last chapter. And they're, they're basically having a conversation at the close of chapter number 9. And uh, you can even read the last verse there. Verse 27 of chapter 9 says, As they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on, But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Here's Samuel, the, the prophet of God, just saying, You know what? I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you in private about some things that God has revealed to me. Now we go to chapter 10. In verse number 1, the Bible says, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Now there's a lot to be said about this singular verse. Uh, At first you can talk about the vial of oil or that it's being poured upon his head. This is a sort of private anointing ceremony for King Saul, much like the anointing ceremony of King David, not held publicly before the entire nation of Israel, held here somewhat in private. Now the word anoint simply means this, to rub or sprinkle on. Uh, I'll be cooking a pork shoulder this weekend and I will anoint it with the barbecue sauce, okay? It doesn't necessarily have to have a spiritual application, That word doesn't inherently mean that it's spiritual. In this context, it certainly is. But the word anoint does not speak to any theological nature. It's just saying that the oil was applied to King Saul, or at this time, just Saul. Now, the the spiritual application is this. In the Bible, oil serves as a representative or a type of the Holy Spirit. And so when you see the oil being placed upon a man, it is indicative of the Holy Spirit coming onto that man, in many cases for the purpose of service. And maybe at David's anointing, we see this a little bit more clearly. 
As 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And then the Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So the application of the oil and the presence of the Holy Spirit in this manner became almost synonymous as the king was being anointed. And that's the symbolic picture of the Holy Spirit's equipping for service. There's much could be said about why it's applied to the head or the amount in which it's applied to the head. One of the verses we see kind of speaking about this particular topic, it's a strange verse. I preached on it kind of earlier this year. But Psalm 133 verse 2, the Bible says, It is the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. And we can all have revival right now. Let's just have an altar call for that verse. Talking about the oil being applied to his head and how it runs down his beard and runs down upon his garment. Why does it mention that? Well, in, the, in Psalm 133, it's talking about how pleasant it is that brethren would dwell together in unity. And what we find is the application of the oil to the head is indicative that the Holy Spirit must control the mind of this man. And then that then runs down throughout all the other instruments of his body. If you have the mind, you have the hands. If you have the hands or you have the mind, you have the feet. And this oil was oftentimes, this ceremony was quite messy. And it was a picture of the abiding presence and the equipping service of the Holy Spirit of God upon this particular man. The Bible goes on to say that Samuel kissed him. Now what does this have anything to do with it? Well, this is a very subtle way for Samuel to say, I am on your side and I approve of your calling. We work together and it's uh, in a sense he's saying, look, I may not have been fully on board with this whole king idea, but this is where we are and I'm going to support it to the best of my ability. You know, there's incredible wisdom in that. You I mean, there's, no, there's not been a bigger uh, uh, person against the idea of Israel having a king. There's not been one man more outspoken than Samuel was about the whole idea. And now that the king is anointed, this is where God has ordained this to be. This has been brought together by the Lord. And you know what? Samuel in, in, in essentially is saying, I may not like it, but I am here to support it. If we could get that spirit in so many Baptist churches around the nation, I think so much more would be accomplished. I hear all the time of people not supporting their pastor's authority and not supporting their pastor's vision for the church. I even heard here recently of a pastor who removed a, a, a certain object from the lobby of his audit, uh, from the lobby of his church. They did a sort of renovation, and he removed an object from that lobby. And then uh, he said, well, we can put it over here. Somebody didn't like that idea. He said, so, okay, we'll just kind of leave it out. Now people in the church are clamoring, where's the object that we wanted? We, we want it back. It's in, the, it's in the filing cabinet out back. It's got waste management services written on it. You know, the idea is, well, we all want our way in the church, but that's not the best way to go about having church. Behold how pleasant and good it is that brethren would dwell together in unity Samuel here is not getting his way. You understand that. His way is God's way. He'd prefer that God had been their king all along. And yet Samuel says, you know what? 
I'm the man of God. This is where God has brought us. And I will do everything I can to strengthen your hands and support your ministry. I'm in this. And he kissed Saul there that day. And then at the close of verse 1 it says, hath, uh, The Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance. And that's so important that we understand that this was God's people, not Saul's people. Uh, if you study what the Lord's inheritance is, the Lord's inheritance is the nation of Israel. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the lot of His inheritance. And what Samuel is reminding uh, uh, Saul of here is he's saying, Saul, you may be in charge, but you are not the one calling the shots. You're not to take these people and do with them whatever you want for them. This is God's people and it is His inheritance. Let's read verse number 2. We'll kind of go through these a little faster. When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found. And lo, thy father hath left thee caring of the asses, and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? And this is just a side note, but as I was reading through this, if I was going to mention something about verse 2, it's this. You never really truly know what's important until it's gone. And here's Saul's dad, who sent his son after some donkeys. And now he's been gone so long, now the dad's like, you know what, keep the donkeys, I just want my son back. Sometimes we misprioritize the things in life. We work so hard, maybe at our job, and we fail to realize that the things that maybe are at home are far more, of far more value, and yet we give to the, the man all the hours of our day, and we give to our kids the, the Heisman maneuver, Heimlich maneuver, Heisman one of the two. Uh, you're a good dad if you're rendering aid with the Heimlich maneuver. But uh, uh, we just we misprioritize things. Now, uh, Saul's dad's saying, you know what? What shall I do for my son? I don't even care about the donkeys anymore. But that's just something that maybe uh, you can take tonight. Uh, verse number 3. Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel. I want you to notice the specificity with which Samuel is speaking of. These are all future events. This is prophetic in nature. He is predicting that these things will come to pass. There will be three men. Uh, you're going you're gonna to meet them as you pass Rachel's sepulcher at the border of Benjamin and Zelza. There will be three men. They're going to be going up to God, to Bethel. One carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. That's pretty specific, is it not? Verse number 4, And they will salute thee, and they will give thee two loaves of bread, in which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place, with a psaltery, a tabret, and a pipe, and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. Now, Remove yourself from uh, the fact that we have hindsight here. If you're Saul, being told this by Samuel before these events occur, what do you think the percentage is that these exact event events will come to pass? 
without any sort of divine intervention, what do you think the chances are that these exact events will happen in the next few moments? I would, I would guess to say, not very good. Not a very high percentage chance that Samuel has somehow arranged this. So why are these events so specific and why does Samuel speak to Saul in this nature? Because a lot has changed in Saul's life since he left looking for some donkeys. A lot. He left, not, and I'll say this, he was pretty bad at looking for donkeys, if you remember. He checked everywhere they weren't. I mean, he looked in a lot of places and they weren't there. And yet, he, they come up with the idea to go see the man of God, that's Samuel, and it's that moment where Samuel begins to prepare him for this message, that he would be the next king. He left looking for donkeys, and now he's been anointed king. That's a big change. And I think what's happening here is Samuel is trying to show him, look Saul, this is not coincidental. This is not me trying to arrange circumstances because the people are trying to call for a king and i got to give them one or else things are going to be crazy and hectic and they're going to want my head, so I'm just going to offer you up instead. That's not what's happening. Samuel says, look, I want you to understand, God is in this. And He's going to arrange these circumstances. You're going to go to this specific place. You're going to encounter these specific men. They're going to be carrying these specific objects. They're going to give to you this. And they're going to say to you this. And on this date, why is he going through all this rigmarole? He is saying to Saul, when this prophetic message comes to pass, you will know indeed that God has His hand on your ministry. This is not a Samuel thing. This is a sovereign thing. And that's what Samuel is trying to prove to Saul in this moment. Verse number 6, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Now, what does that word prophesy mean? It means many things, but really, in its simplest form, it means to simply speak by inspiration. Speak by inspiration. It does not necessarily indicate that Saul is now predicting future events. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that he could be speaking under the influence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, he is prophesying. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's saying, next Wednesday we're going to have sunny weather with partly cloudy. That's not what he's doing. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that he's speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 7. And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. Again, I reiterate, why did all these signs come to pass? To prove to Saul that God would be with him. Verse number 8. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings, Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come unto thee, and show thee what thou shalt do. Now verse number 8 is Saul's first lesson as king. Okay, He's not been to any king classes yet. He's not gone through Prince Academy. This is his first lesson. And the lessons material, if he got a syllabus on the first day of class, it would be this. The separation of church and state. You say, why why do you say that? Because what has never happened heretofore 
is that Israel have two heads. Israel has always had one king. That king was not only spiritual in nature, but that king was also national. Meaning, God dictated their spiritual course and their national interactions. So, Jericho was not happenstance. It was not coincidence. God directed them to Jericho, won the battle for them. God led them out of Egypt. God did all those national policy type of things... But primarily, God was concerned about them spiritually, right? So God was the head of that. What you find here is in the scriptures that so far God has raised men and even women to serve as judges, to serve as leaders. Moses was a leader. He has had priests uh, to be a spiritual uh, leader uh, amongst the people. But now it is, you have the national leader as the king, And you have the spiritual leader as the priest. In this particular scenario, that is represented by Saul as the one handling foreign and domestic policy. uh, And you have Samuel representing spiritual matters. I hope we understand that. Now you say, well, why couldn't the king do both? Ideally, it would work that way, right? King David did that for some time. There were godly kings along the time. Uh, You think of David and Solomon for a time being. Uh, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, uh, Josiah. Out of the 20 kings in Israel's uh, 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 reign, I guess you'd say, or their monarchies, uh, out of the 20 that represented Israel, and then after the divided kingdom, Judah... Out of the 20, there were about six of them that were righteous and spiritually minded. That's in the good kingdom. Because when the kingdom splits and goes to Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, then we find that there is not a single righteous king amongst them. Ideally, I think the king would have been interested in spiritual matters. But reality kind of indicated that it was a very rare occurrence where the king would lead the nation spiritually, as well as nationally speaking. So the lesson then is this. Samuel, or uh, Saul, I'm in charge of sacrifice. I want you to wait on me. Now this is a real problem because kings do not wait on anyone. People wait on kings. Now Saul's going to have trouble with this lesson. Because here in chapter 13, that seven-day period is going to pass. And Saul's going to say to himself, the people's hearts are far from me, and they're not following me, they're worried. And so what he does is he crosses this line between the separation of church and state, and he says, all right, I'm going to sacrifice. And it's one of his first great errors as king. I think in our day and age, we have confused... Uh, the, the meaning and the purpose of that idea of church and state and the separation of church and state. Uh, some time ago, I attended a wedding and the man at the end said something to the effect of, by the power invested in me by God and the state of. I do not say that. I say by God. Because as far as I'm concerned, the state ain't got no business in marriage. It wasn't the state's idea, was it? And what about when the state totally screws it up? Are they not already doing that? Right. What was God's definition of marriage? 
Okay, what's our state's definition? <laughs> Who knows these days? And what happens when the state gets way off bounds? Are we still going to ask for their endorsement? My point is not to criticize the minister that said that. I think it's uh, an okay thing to say. But my point is this. There are certain things that belong to the church. And there are certain things that belong in the government. This, the, the origin of the idea of separation of church and state, and, and I want to clarify here. I understand that we're talking about Israel here, not the church. I, I get that theological truth. The idea is, though, that there is a spiritual interest toward, in this nation and a national interest in this nation as the church. And, and I am not a replacement theologian, meaning I don't believe that the church replaced Israel. But I do see in our day and age, we're accepting things saying, well, the government has control of these matters and the government has control of these matters. The church was always to influence government. The government was never to influence the church. Hope we understand that. There's a real line to be drawn there. And so this is his first lesson. Wait on me. I am the priest. You are the king. I handle spiritual matters. I will do the sacrificing. You as the king will lead in military conquests. You will lead in national interests. But there is a line to be drawn in the sand. Chapter 13, King Saul fails in this matter. You know, if you mess up on the fundamentals, you generally mess up in the advanced stuff. He messed up on the fundamentals here. Uh, Reading on... We see in verse number 9, And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied, prophesied among them. It came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now here's what happens. Verse number 11. Saul goes home. He's returned back to where he grew up. All those years growing up. These these were the kids he played dodgeball with. These were the kids that he played freeze tag with. These are all of his people that knew him. And he returns home and they say... This is a different guy than the one we know. Uh, There is really no indication at all that Saul was a spiritual man. He very rarely thinks spiritual thoughts. Uh, And I may be reading into the text there, but I cannot find many spiritual thought processes in his life. However, now Saul comes home and he is prophesying. He is speaking under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And everybody looks at Saul and says, Yeah, Uh, I know he left about two weeks ago to go find these donkeys. I don't know what happened. I don't know what he's drinking, what he's eating. I don't know what happened while he was out there. But this is a different guy altogether. And what I find interesting is, if you continue to read, verse number 11 they say, uh, What is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Now, generally speaking... You were, you were uh, represented, if you will, by your father. And your father's legacy carried upon you. They say of Saul here, this is Saul. And, and, and we'll read verse number 12 just for our understanding. And one in the same place, the only guy with a right mind, the only guy really thinking, he said, one in the same place answered and said, but who is their father? Meaning, the the prophets that he's with and prophesying with, 
why do y'all act as if Saul can't do this because his daddy is Kish, while you have no clue who their daddy is? In a sense, what this guy is saying is, Saul's legacy is not determined by his daddy. Just because his daddy didn't do one thing doesn't mean that he can't do it. This is what's, what's ironic to me is this is very much the same reaction that Jesus got when he returned home. The Bible says that Jesus goes home to Nazareth. He speaks in the synagogue and speaks in parables. And they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is this not just that Joseph guy? You know, he was not much of a contributor to society. He wasn't very popular. Nobody really knew that much about him. We just knew he made good furniture. And yet this guy comes home and and he's speaking, speaking like this. Aren't you thankful that your legacy is not limited to your lineage? I hear Brother Brian Cohn say amen there. And I'm thankful that Brother Brian Cohn's legacy was not limited to his lineage. I know his testimony. I know the kind of home he grew up in. Brian Cohn is a godly man, and his relationship with God was not determined by his daddies. I'm thankful for that. And look, just because I have a godly daddy doesn't mean that his legacy somehow then goes on me. Each one of us have to walk with God on our own. It's a decision we all make. I even saw today as one of the more famous people, uh, one of the more famous uh, uh, pastors in our nation. His son is going on social media and absolutely calling God evil. That daddy sits there and weeps over his son. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. And even as we celebrated Father's Day this last week... I don't know if your home was godly and helpful for your spiritual walk. I don't know if it was detrimental. But I'm telling you, stop blaming your dad for your relationship with God. You have to decide to have a relationship with Him. It is offered to you freely. Will you step out and take it? Because God promises it. It's not your daddy. It's you. And they say, well, I guess Saul can do it if it's not directly linked to his dad. Verse number 13. And when he had made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place. In other words, he goes to the place where you would go to meet with God. This man who didn't generally think spiritual thoughts now heads to the place where he craves spiritual things. He's going to the high place where you would go to ascend to meet with the Lord. And Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, Whither went ye? And he said to seek the asses. Of course, that's what we went to do. We had to go find the donkeys. And when we saw that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. He's, He's right so far. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto thee, uh, unto you. Well, and Samuel said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found. But listen, the matter of the kingdom whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. Could you imagine... All of this happening, and somebody asks you, how'd your trip go? What all happened? You know, we just found out that the donkeys were already back home. That's it? Nothing else eventful happened. This reminds me so much of the conversations my wife and I have at home. Uh, We'll we'll go home, my wife will say, how was your day? It was a good day. Yeah, it was a good day. You want to watch something on TV? Sure, let's watch something on TV. Three days later, my wife will find out a piece of news that I certainly should have shared with her. And she'll say, why didn't you tell me? You know, I I don't know why I didn't tell you. I just never crossed my mind. This is what happens. Why did Saul not tell anybody else? 
I don't think that it was disbelief. I don't know how you could look at the prophetic events that had happened and say that God wasn't in this. Samuel, the man of God, was anointed, had anointed him already. What was happening? I don't think it was disbelief. I think it was denial. This was an intimidating task for Saul. I think we see that in the upcoming verses. But, but this was hard for Saul to accept this great responsibility. And so he doesn't mention it because, in a sense, he's compartmentalized it away from the reality that he will eventually lead the nation. Moving on, we continue to read in verse number 17. And Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah, and said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought thee up out of the, uh, up out Israel out of Egypt, and delivered you into the hands of the Egyptians, out of the hands of all kingdoms, and of, of them that oppressed you. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversaries and tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken. Uh, and when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri uh, was taken. The, uh, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Uh, Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. And that phrase, they are voicing their unanimous support that Samuel had anointed Saul as king of Israel. What I found interesting as I studied that phrase is, you've heard the phrase, God save the king. I studied the etymology of that word. Where did it come from? What's its origin? Did you know that the phrase, God save the king, in world history cannot be found before this phrase? As far as world history teaches us, this is the genesis of the phrase, God save the king. It speaks of the support of the monarchy. It speaks of voicing your support for it all. And that God would bless it so that its reign would be a long one and a prosperous one. God save the king. And the people are voicing their unanimous support for Saul. Here's a couple problems with it. Number one, Saul was from the wrong tribe. Uh, Genesis chapter 48 said the scepter should never depart from, do you all remember what, we've, we've covered it several times, Judah. The tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is called the lion, the king of all the beasts, of the tribe of Judah. It was clear from the beginning that the king should come from Judah. David is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Yet the people voiced their support for Saul. They did this, I believe, uh, because they had chosen this king. This was the king that they had longed for and the king that they desired. He was from the wrong tribe. He was the wrong type of person. Say, what do I mean? I think, first of all, you can see that in his spirituality. Like I said, I find no spiritual thinking. I find no spiritual actions. But more than that, 
even Samuel falls into this trap because after the Bible indicates that he is head and shoulders above all the other people, you know what Samuel says? Look, this is the guy. This is the guy that God has brought us. And they're proud of the physical features of their king. Again, Samuel makes this very same mistake when looking at Eliab, David's oldest brother, and he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. What, what did he see? He just saw his stature. He saw he was a good-looking guy. And he said, yep, you have that kingly look. I talked to you last week that maybe David doesn't quite resemble the type that many of us have in our mind. But, but regardless, I think God was saying, everybody's so enamored with the outward features, and what I look at is the heart. That's what mattered to God. And so God, sure, if, if God wanted a tall king, He could have a tall king. If He wanted a smart king, He could have a smart king. But, but God doesn't need the things that our world deems valuable to make things good. I want you to understand that. When God came to this earth, He chose the humble things. That's the nature of our God. In fact, when, uh, cho- when choosing between Jerusalem, God's big grand city... Or Bethlehem, he chose Bethlehem. When choosing between the temple or the palace or the manger in a stable, he chose the stable. When choosing to be welcomed by kings and princes or shepherds, he told lowly shepherds where he would be born. You see, our God... Is a hump. He works in humility. He loves humility. Our God could have come to this world with all the pomp and circumstances that we had to offer, and yet He would have still been the most humble. But when He came, He humbled Himself, and He became a servant of all of us. So for us to look at Saul and say, yeah, he's strong, he's a strapping, good-looking guy, that's the kind of guy that God can use. No. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 9, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth, glorieth, uh, him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Meaning God is far less interested in the wisdom of men, the strength of men, and the riches of men, as He is men who desperately want to know Him. And it can be no mere coincidence that David was the next choice because Saul was the wrong type. He was from the wrong tribe, and Israel had the wrong target in mind. Do you remember what their motivation for having a king was? Let us be just like everybody else. We want to be like all the other nations. Remember, that's not what God had wanted for them. And listen, God doesn't want you to be like everybody else. He wants you to be different. He wants you to be unique. He wants to pour His power into you so that the world might see, hey, I know they can't be doing that on their own. God has been good in their life. See, they had many wrong things about King Saul. And in Samuel's farewell address in chapter 12, and we'll get there in the next few studies, you know what Samuel says about Saul? Now therefore behold the king whom ye have chosen. 
You know who chose him? God allowed it, but this was the kind of man that Israel wanted. This was the kind of man, if they were writing a pros and cons list, they don't want a kid that's grown up raising sheep. They want a mighty man, one that comes from a family with prestige, one that comes from a mighty family, one with influence. This was the kind of guy they were looking for. This was the kind of guy they got. And they would eventually regret that decision. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And there went him with a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Now verse number 27 is interesting to me for this very reason. Saul at this point has done nothing wrong. He's just, at the word of the man of God, he has just allowed step by step, you know, kind of taking the next step. He's just done what needed to be done. He's not made any mistakes yet. He's not offered sacrifices incorrectly. He's not chasing David down. He's not made any of his mistakes yet. He is just a, a rookie setting out, and there's already people that hate him. Do you know what that tells me? Sometimes you do not have to have done anything. It may not even be your fault. These people never gave Saul a chance. Now, we don't like him. We despise him. And they didn't bring any presents because of it. You know what's sad about these kind of people is, here in just a year, one year, he'll have a good first year of his reign. The second year, it starts to trend downhill. Really, just one good year, one bad year. You know what these same people are going to be saying? We told you so. You know what, if you never hop on any train, that means you never go anywhere. But you're willing to be able to laugh at everybody that has any collisions along the way. You just sit there as a scoffer and a skeptic saying, yeah, that'll never work. And you become the stick in the mud that can't be moved and you yourself make no progress for the Lord. I will have to say, Saul's reign is not a good one. But Samuel said, you know what? If this is what God's will is, if this is where we're at, I'll support it. I may not like it. I may not want to go with it. But you know what? If we're going to do this, let's be all in. That's the heart of a church. But so many churches have people that sit on the back row. and That'll never work. Nope. I'm not going to participate in that ministry. I'll participate in this ministry, in this ministry, in this ministry. But preacher started that one without my approval. That is not the spirit that ought to be held in, in, inside the church. We're either all in or we're not in at all. These people, uh, these people are so prevalent in our society today. Uh, they're called keyboard warriors on social media. They just they criticize everything. One day they criticize you for saying you won't. The next day they criticize you for saying you will. You can't win with these type of people. So don't let these people bring you down. Because that's where they reside. Below you. So we come to the end of the chapter. And uh, I want you to see just a few things as we close this, this evening. 
As I read through the chapter again, I point out to you that there are several themes that stick out to me. And I find there's a very unique theme developed within this chapter. It is that of the heart. That of the heart. Notice in verse number 9, I want you to see how God deals with Saul's heart. And I want you to see, first of all, a transplanted heart. Verse number 9, the Bible says, And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. God gave him another heart. Verse number 6, Samuel had uh, prophesied, that when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, what does it say? And thou shalt prophesy with them, thou shalt be turned into another man. How does God make a different man out of Saul? He gives him a new heart. How does God equip each and every one of us for the service that we're called to, the ministry that we're called to? He changes our heart. He gives us a heart for it. I'll never forget Randy Ashcraft after being called from Mexico to Thailand, to specifically to the Muslim people of Thailand. He came and he preached a sermon in our church about how he hated the people he was called to. You say, well, that's pretty coarse. No, you understand the time frame was right after 9-11. And he was about to go witness to a bunch of people and tell them about the love of Christ who had just caused the Twin Towers to fall. How do, how, how do we get to the place where we want to serve God? God just changes your heart. How does this happen? Well, it happens like in verse number 6. The Holy Spirit has to take over. The Holy Spirit is not this mysterious walk. It's not this mysterious thing that we can't do. Really, walking in the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is simple as this. Say yes when He moves. Always say yes. Never say no to any impulse of the Holy Spirit. And what you'll find is you'll begin to speak the Spirit's language much more eloquently. And maybe that's not the right word. Fluently is the word I'm looking for. You'll begin to speak the language of the Spirit if you'll just start to say yes. Because I believe the Spirit's always talking to you. He's always speaking to the Christian. He is in our lives for the purpose to guide us into all truth, and He's in our lives to guide us into the will of God. But when we start to say no, guess what? His voice gets weaker and weaker and weaker. What you'll find is if you'll start to say yes, God will cultivate in you a heart for a specific thing in a specific place. It's just how it happens. God's given me a heart for you here at Joshua Baptist Church. Preacher mentioned it the other night. God never showed up at the foot of my bed and told me that I should be the pastor of this church. I hate to break it to you. The only thing showing up at the foot of my bed are creepy children in the middle of the night that scare me half to death. You know how I know that this is the place God has called me to? Because I have an an unbelievable love and compassion for the people of this place. I don't love people, generally speaking. I don't really even like people, frankly. But for some reason, God has given me a love for you. So, God has given me a heart for you. That is how God works. He gives us transplants. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 36 says, A new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart, that which is unmovable, that which cannot be affected. I will take out the stony heart out of, the, out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, something that can be affected and can be moved. 
You know what? If you have a heart for children, get involved in children's ministry. If you have a heart for singing songs of worship, get involved in the choir. Get involved in the specials ministry. If you have a heart for teaching God's Word, find a place to teach God's Word. There are so many places that you can serve, but God must give you a heart for it. We find there's a transplanted heart. Secondly, there's a timid heart. Verse number 22, and somewhat a comical passage of Scripture, the Bible says, Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. They did a sort of Achan thing where they uh, have to look, you remember in Achan's trespass, he took of the accursed thing and they were trying to figure out who did it. Nobody was coming forward and confessing, so they had to decipher who did it. So they set all the children of Israel out there and they narrowed it down by tribes and then by families and they eventually landed on Achan. They do the same thing here and it comes to King Saul, or Saul at this time. Uh, it comes to Saul and they say, where's Saul at? He's the guy and this is, this is hilarious. And the Lord answered, behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. He's hiding. He's just hiding. Everybody's looking for him and he's hiding. Years ago at a pep rally at Godly Elementary, I had always wanted the spirit stick. Every single Friday we had the pep rally and the spirit stick was given to the one who yelled the loudest. I always wanted it because in children's church I always won the yell the loudest contest. But at Godly I never won. And I would always scream and my face would turn red and the people in front of me would complain about the saliva on the back of their head. And I would always want the spirit stick, but without fail, the winner this week is not you. And they would give it to somebody else. One week, I was, uh, I think my dad and I had gone to visit the Deer family. Uh, uh, also, we went on visitation to the Deer Blind. You remember that, Dad? That was a great, great ministry experience. I was out one Friday... And each cheerleader was given a different turn to uh, a give the spirit stick away. Well, I come back to school on Monday talking about how good a trip I had. Man, we had a great time of visitation and prayer and just fasting, all sorts of things. It was just great. I think Dad even shot a deer. It was wonderful. Um, and uh, we, somebody, I come into school on Monday and they say, Hey, Andrew, you won the spirit stick. I said, What? Apparently, a, a young lady in our church was one of the cheerleaders. And I didn't know this at the time, but they go out knowing who they're going to select ahead of time. It's rigged from the beginning. You don't have to scream. You don't have to yell. I want to put myself in that gymnasium when they're like, and the one that yelled the loudest today is the one that had the most team pride and the team spirit is Andrew Wolfenberger. He's deer hunting. I know that's a little bit of a funny thing, but that's literally what happens. And the king is Saul, the son of Kish. Have you seen Saul? Has anybody seen Saul? And the omnipotent God, the Bible says, verse 22, uh, or, uh, let's see, where, where is it? Verse 22, that's what I thought, I can't find it though. Uh, therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither, and the Lord answer. Nobody else knew where he was, and the Lord had to say, yeah, he's hiding. Why was he hiding? I hate to suggest things that I don't think are clearly spelled out in Scripture, but if I had to read this passage... It seems to me that Saul is overwhelmed with the great responsibility now placed upon him. 
And he is thinking in his mind, how am I going to do this? This is too much for me. Very much like Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was called to be a prophet to the nations, you know what he says? Oh, Lord God, I am but a child. And God gets on to Jeremiah because God says uh, to him, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I shall command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. He says, I can't do this. This is way too big for me. And God says, it may be too big for you, but it's not too big for me. You know, God does not call the equipped. God equips the called. Sometimes we look at the ministries that we have in front of us and we say, there's no way I could ever do that. God will give you the ability if you will just give Him your availability. Just say, Lord, I'll do it. I never wrangled a bunch of fourth grade boys or girls. I've never had to ask them to sit in their chairs. I've never had to put them in headlocks and say, you're going to listen to this Bible lesson and I'm praying for your salvation. You know, you may have never done that before. But if that's where God calls you and He puts a heart for the ministry in you, man, you just surrender to it. And God will equip you in that place. Saul has a timid heart. And I even think we see that he had been given a transplanted heart. But I want you to see thirdly, there is a touched heart in verse number 26. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. Their calling was just as legitimate as Saul's. They were men to support him. It's unclear in the text whether it was uh, they were sort of bodyguards for him. Maybe they were sort of advisors for him. Maybe, and this is what I think it was, they were just uh, friends. They were just people to help him with anything he needed. David had been given his mighty men. You remember them? And yet, this is what Saul needed. He needed to know that he was not alone. He needed to know that there was somebody that when the sons of Belial were speaking up and saying, I hate our king. What's he ever done to you? Nothing. I just can't stand the guy. When those guys were screaming loudly, here's what Saul needed. He needed somebody in his corner to say, they may not like you, king, but I've got your back. God had touched their heart. I look over the history of this ministry, and I am not a charter church member, um, but I will say I have been here my entire life. Born on a Thursday in the nursery on Sunday. And I look back over the church history, and I see men that God brought into this place. Not just men, but, but ladies as well. He brought them here, and He gave them a calling and anointing to serve in a specific ministry, in a specific area, and they were the only ones that could do it. My mind goes to Bobby Isabel. My dad is a much different man at 82 than he was at 55. Uh, He was harder. He was more stern. He uh, He required much more of those that worked side by side with him. 
I mean, uh, people talked about, you don't want to go into preacher's office. Now going into preacher's office is good. He gives out candy and Pepsis. I mean, it's better now than it's ever been. But you know what? Bobby Isabel was perfect for that time to serve right alongside preacher, to be there, because as expecting as preacher was, Bobby met the bell and expected that of everybody else. Brother Jim served alongside my father and, and even helped me early on in our ministry God called him to this place for that time for a specific purpose. God gave him a calling and touched his life. My mind even goes to Miss Mary Zorns who served faithfully. You don't even understand how impactful and influential she was in my mother's ministry. My mom could not have done it, I do not believe, humanly speaking, without Miss Mary right there in the chair beside her. They went through an audit. And my mom probably lost more hair in that audit than any other time, and I'm just telling you, without Miss Mary right there to hold her hand, she never gets through it. Now, she still has every check. She still has every account balance. She has everything planned. But Miss Mary was there to help in that time of need. God gave her a calling, and God had touched her heart. I want to ask you a question. I close on this. When is the last time God touched your heart for a specific place in ministry? Or do you just think that God's done touching people today? Do you think that God calls us to serve and to love and to give, but He doesn't give us specific places to do so? No, no, no. God's still calling. God's still touching. But I just wonder, when's the last time He touched you? When's the last time He spoke to you and said, You know what? There's a hole right here in the ministry. Right here is a spot that you can serve. I have uniquely designed you and crafted you for this place and this time and this moment. Much like Esther had been raised for this time. When's the last time God said that to you? See, God touches people today. So often when God touches us, we say, you know what, Lord, I'm just a little too busy for that kind of commitment. I'm just not ready to commit full time to something that requires that much of me. And so when God touches, we push His hand away and the ministry suffers and we don't get to serve. God still touches. God still calls. God still speaks. And if He hasn't touched you in some time, why don't you come to an altar and say, Lord, speak to me. Touch me. You've given me a mind. You've given me faculties. You've given me abilities. Lord, use me within your service. I may not be king, but I can sure be somebody that supports the king. Maybe that's what the Lord would do in your heart tonight.